pleasure to be to be with you and to feast on God's word together. I want to ask you to open your Bibles to the Gospel according to Luke. A very, very familiar section that we'll be spending our time in, but I'm been praying that the Lord would assist us this morning. I've been praying for you that the Lord would make your hearts receptive to his word and that we would in a fresh way consider this very familiar passage. Before we're going to read it, however, just by way of introduction, I want to summarize for you, and in a sense, Pastor Carabo already gave the perfect introduction to the sermon this morning, and if you paid attention to his prayer, he would have heard these words as well. It's a summary of the gospel. That is the, the Christian gospel, or if we want to be a little bit more theologically prestigious, we could say the orthodox gospel. And with, with that, we simply mean the gospel that the church has always believed the Bible to proclaim. The true church of Christ everywhere in the world, not from one particular nation or from one particular group or from one particular denomination, but what the church has always upheld as the truth of the proclamation of the Bible of what the gospel is. That gospel can be summarized in three simple words. As daunting as the scriptures might be, this is exceptionally encouraging. Because in all the texts of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, we have one simple message, like a thread that runs through the entire scriptures, a message that God wants to reveal to us as His creatures. And it's this. God saves sinners. That's it. God saves sinners. It's an utterly and completely unique message. In whatever message they might be out there, proclaimed to be a good news, because that's essentially what gospel means. You, you know that you're a well-taught church. Gospel, evangelion, good news. Uh, it's not Christians only who profess and proclaim to have good news. Every group, whether that be secular, political, or religious, proclaims to have the key to good news. But the gospel of the Bible is completely unique and it's completely different. It's one of a kind. Some might say, well, it's a very simplistic way of putting it. I mean, we could use far more profound and theological words to explain what the gospel is. But these three words are intentionally simple. Because the section of scripture that we are going to look at is telling us that God really makes it simple and God really allows us to be simple in our understanding of the gospel and our understanding of what he came to do for us. In fact, I would say in one sense it even requires it. You see, this is without a shadow of a doubt the message that Jesus proclaimed throughout his ministry on earth. Because Jesus was really proclaiming that which the Old Testament reveals. Jesus did not come with a 
new message. He did not come with a different kind of good news that God already revealed through the prophets in the Old Testament. It was in line with what God has always been saying. But Jesus simplified it for them. He put it in simple terms, without any ambiguity, so that everybody, all his audience could hear and follow very clearly what he is saying. But this is the very reason why his immediate audience, uh, the Jews or the religious leaders of the day, hated him. And they did everything in their power to silence him and ultimately to get rid of him. When you think about those three words which summarizes the Christian gospel, it's not really the first two words which rub them up the wrong way. Because the Jews could deal with the concept of a God, right? The Jews were not atheistic. They were to the core theistic. They, they believed in a God. And they even believed in a God who saves. I mean, they had the Old Testament scriptures. They had 4,000 years of history since the calling of their first father Abraham. Where it's very clearly revealed that God can save. And he saves in miraculous ways. I mean, think about what we have in scripture. Even if we date it earlier than the times of Abraham, their father, and we go to the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. Or let's just define it or refine it even closer to say the first two chapters of the book of Genesis. You see a wonder-working God who does miracles, who, who speaks things into existence. You see, the Jews of Jesus' day was not liberal in the sense of the liberals of our day who denies the, the miracle-working hand of God, who, did, who denies everything that is above the so-called laws of nature. No, they, they accepted a God who could do mighty works. And a God who did those mighty works to save their forefathers. When there were slaves in Egypt, I mean, we could, we could spend the whole day like those in the days of Ezra who read the entire law to recount again and refresh our minds on the wonder-working miracles of God and how He delivered His people out of Egypt with the ten plagues and bringing them through the Red Sea and what He did for them in the wilderness and providing water from a rock and manna and quail out of nowhere. How He rescued them from all their enemies, their, their persecutors as they came into the promised land under the hand of Joshua and his, his leadership. We can go on to the time of the judges when, when Israel was oppressed and how God delivered them time after time after time. The Jews did not deny that God saves, but it's this third aspect of the gospel which really got under their skin. The fact that Jesus was proclaiming that God saves Of all people that they are to save. God saves sinners. Well, in reality, those are the only kind of people that there are for God to save. And it's this third part of his message, of this gospel message, which Jesus specifically repeated and emphasized time and time 
the game. Not just through his words, but even through his actions. Just keep your fingers there in Luke chapter 18. We'll come to the text in a second. It's just a short couple of verses, very familiar text. We'll read it in a second. But just page back to Luke chapter 15. This is just before Jesus tells a series of three parables. Parable of of those who were lost. A lost sheep and a lost coin and a lost son. You'll you'll be familiar with, with those stories, with those parables. What got Jesus onto that train of telling those parables, series of parables, is the accusation brought by the Pharisees and the scribes, the so-called religious elite of the day, in verse 2 of Luke chapter 15, where they murmured, they complained, they, they grumbled, they were seriously upset with this so-called man that raised himself to the level of a religious leader. They were upset because of whom he was rubbing shoulders with. The Pharisees and the scribes murmured, saying, This man receives sinners. And would you believe it? He attends their parties. He throws a feast with them. Jesus was not, or did not shy away from rubbing shoulders with the discarded and the rejected of, the, of society. Those with whom he went about makes his message and his intent and his purpose crystal clear. Why he came. It's without any ambiguity. The gospel writers calls Jesus, based on his ministry emphasis, a friend of sinners. Friend of sinners. He stated it in, in, in so many words. Uh, Pastor Karabu referred to that in his introduction when he mentioned that Jesus said that he did not come for those who are well, but for those who are sick. He did not come it carries on to say, to call those who are righteous, or you could catch the sarcasm there, those who consider themselves to be righteous, the so-called righteous, he did not come to call them. In fact, Jesus had absolutely no time for the so-called righteous, self-righteous of society. He came to call sinners to repentance. See, friends, what we need to understand is that the gospel is not essentially and primarily offensive because it tells people what they should do and not do. I mean, granted, some people are offended by that, right? My children are offended when I tell them what to do and what not to do. Who are you to tell me? You've experienced this. What elevates you? What gives you the right to exalt yourself and to tell me how I'm allowed to... This is my life. Don't tell me how I should live. Have you heard those kind of reactions? Yes, people are offended by that. I get that. But there's something about the gospel that is far more offensive than that. 
Not that the gospel tells us what we should do. It's that the gospel tells us that there is nothing we can do. There's nothing we can do. You see, if we were to elaborate on that definition slightly and not just say the gospel is God saves sinners, we could add there one little word and say the gospel saves only sinners. Or God saves only sinners. But we live in a society that is self-righteous. Religiously self-righteous by the way, where we build for ourselves little bridges to the, to the end goal and the end means, where we think we, we belong and where we think we should be welcomed and accepted with open arms. Even secular society is religious to an extent because religion simply means that I do something to gain credit. By the way, Christianity and the message of Christianity is very anti-religious. It's anti-religious. In that sense, in that definition of religion, that we need to do something to get something. It's essentially what religion is. Christianity is not religious. Christianity is not merely out to tell us what we should do and what we should not do. Christianity, the gospel message of the Christian, tells us that there is nothing we can do. Yet in our fallenness, we do not like to accept inability. We just don't like it. Don't tell somebody that he's not good enough. No, build his self-esteem. Until he believes that he's good enough. You know, in my days when I was at school, we used to play sport. And if you lose, you lose too bad. These days, everybody's a winner, right? Everybody gets a medal. Even if you are terrible, you should never be part of the team. But you get a medal. Because we don't want to do anything that have this person believe that he's not good enough. As a young man, I initially showed intense interest in assisting my father in the garage when he used to fix motorcars. And what I knew and still know about motorcars are very, very dangerous. But I, I was eager. I wanted to help. I wanted to be of some assistance. And my dad recognized that initially and invited me along and say son this is this is what this is going to be wonderful some father and son time in the garage it's going to be fantastic it wouldn't be long until he requests of me to just sit there and watch what he's doing because i'm not helping the situation friends that's what the gospel says the gospel says as soon as you try to do something to help, you're actually making it worse. You need to sit on the sidelines and what, what God will do and what God has done and accept that. 
Rather than think that you have some place where you can make some contribution. You see, the biggest obstacle to salvation is an unwillingness to accept and acknowledge and confess that the greatness or the, uh, uh, the extent of our sin is so great that we are unable to make any contribution. That this hole in which we find ourselves is so deep that we can never crawl our way out of it. Not even if somebody drops down a rope and says, help yourself to come and see the light. Just put in the effort. Grasp onto that rope and pull yourself up. We have no ability to save ourselves from the deep hole that we are in because of our sin. That's Jesus' message consistently throughout his ministry. And we read of it again in this very familiar passage, this parable which he told about the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18 from verse 9. Follow along in your Bibles. And he, that is Jesus, spoke this parable unto those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. So here's the parable, verse 10. Two men went unto the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican, or a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice in the week, I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, Standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then the conclusion, what does all of this mean? I tell you, Jesus said, this man, referring to the last man, referring to the publican, the tax collector, this man went down to his house justified. Justified. Rather than the other. For everyone that exalts himself shall be humbled, and he that humbles himself shall be exalted. It's a, it's a lesson about justification. Now justification is a legal term. A legal term used as a theological term. And it has great meaning for us theologically. Uh, justification essentially means that you are acquitted of all guilt. That somebody who has the authority to make a judgment over your case. And once that judgment, judgment has been declared, it is the final word on the matter. Regardless of what other voices are raised. The media can still condemn you. The, the, the so-called victims who believe that you are guilty can still condemn you. But once the judge has made this call on the matter, it is final and fixed. Cast in stone. 
justification, he quitted off guilt. That, that you are allowed to, to walk out of the courtroom a free person. Nobody can charge you with anything that you are liable for. That's justification. It's a, it's a legal concept. And of course, in a spiritual sense, it, it's God making a declaration over your life. And saying you are acquitted of all guilt. You are accepted into my holy and glorious and majestic presence. And when I view you and look at you, I see no wrong whatsoever. That's justification. And this is a lesson on justification. And the Jews, the religious leaders, the the Pharisees and the scribes, the theologians that they were, had their teaching and their understanding of the concept of justification. They divided society into two groups, us and them. Us and them. We are the ones, according to verse 9, that trust in ourselves as being Righteous. We are the righteous ones. This is based from what we see in the rest of scriptures and the gospels on their religiosity, their long prayers, their long robes, their rituals that they so consistently and faithfully performed, their service in the in, in the temple, their knowledge of the law. The keeping of the law. You see, they, they base their, their righteousness on their togetherness. They had it all together. They, they had everything in, in line. They, they, they didn't step this way or, or that way according to what was required. According to them. They were, they were the, the holy ones, the, the good people of society. In our day and age, we like to use this phrase in church, and sometimes I get shivers down my spine when I hear people say these kinds of things. So and so is such a godly man. She's a godly woman. There might be some level of truth in the grace of God in which to which the extent to which a person has grown. But can we truly and ultimately proclaim anybody to which to such an extent the perfectness of godliness? That's something we strive for, believers. That's something we are still on a journey on. That's something we should aspire to and desire in our hearts. Absolutely. I'm not knocking that. But have any of us reached the level of godliness? I doubt. I doubt. In fact, I know that that is not the case. It's not the case. You see, these were merit mongers. They, 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 they crave continually through their works some 
credit, not just from God, but particularly from society. They were so proud of what they have achieved. And everybody who, according to their judgment, does not fall into that elite group is deserving of being despised. Uh, the implication is that if they counted in themselves to be just or justified, everybody else that does not fall in their group is obviously not righteous. They are the unrighteous of society. And therefore, they were despised. The, the Greek word that is used there is a very, very strong word. Um, it's really the word that refers to uh, being without any value. It's the, it's the word we would, we would really use in public, at least of other people, to protect ourselves mainly. We would say, so-and-so is worthless. What a worthless chap. That's the word that's being used. Of absolute no value, cannot make absolutely no contribution to society or to our religious group or to God for that matter. I don't know why that person is even breathing anymore because he's just a nuisance. What is he doing? If we could get rid of these kind of people out of our society, it would be for the better. They're worthless. By considering this other group as worthless, the Pharisees, obviously by implication, considered themselves to be very worthy of great value. Surely, I mean, God must look upon them. I'm so proud of you. I don't know what I would do without you. Amazing. I mean, you even went beyond what I could ever expect. You're my champion, my number one boy. That's the way that they would consider themselves. Being applauded by God. Those were the two groups. But Jesus also identifies two groups in his parable. When he says two men went up to the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. It's very interesting when you... These are Jesus' actual words. If you had one of those Bibles that put the, the records the words of Jesus in red, you would see that this would be in red. This is, this is not what the Gospel writers tells us, Jesus said, this is what Jesus said. These were his words. Consider the fearlessness of Christ to proclaim this offensive gospel. He doesn't use ambiguous terms or labels or titles. He calls them by the name. The very people that standing around him to whom he's talking are Pharisees and tax collectors. So it's as if he's speaking to a crowd and he's, he's saying, so let me tell you, there were two men initially. Okay, very general. We don't know exactly who they are. Couldn't you just leave it there? Jesus, don't be so offensive in your message. Consider peace here. No, Jesus goes on. He says, let me tell you who the two men are. And he says, Pharisees and tax collector. He points them out with his fingers. It's very clear whom Jesus is talking about. 
considering the conclusion of his parable to say that one man went home justified and the other This is brave. That's what it requires. Bravery to preach this message without fear and without apology. Because this is what the Bible says and in fact this is man's only hope. The Pharisees were those who kept the law. They were the pious and the committed. I mean if anybody in society even this other group would acknowledge that if God were to justify and accept anybody, it would be the Pharisees and not us. Because you see, the tax collectors, the, the publicans, they were really uh, the people that you did not want in your society. Nobody liked them. Nobody liked them because uh, these people were thieves. Uh, they, they were greedy. They were violent. They were selfish. They didn't feel anything for their fellow human beings. You see, Rome, the world power of the day, uh, taxed those whom they, whom they conquered. And they would do that through uh, regional, let's call them just coordinators for the sake of terminology and understanding. And those illegal Roman coordinators would employ local people to do the dirty work for them. And so what these local Jews would do is they would in a sense purchase tax booths from the, from, from, from the political leaders of the day, the, the, the Romans. And then they would set up their booths in various places and then there would be various taxes that they would charge. But those who, who, who were their bosses would, would claim their portion on a daily basis and say, this is what I need you to bring in every day as tax. Whatever you get above that, you can keep. So these were thriving businesses and they thrive on taking from others in an unjust way. Not even according to the law of taxes, but raising the taxes so that they could line their own pockets. Nobody liked them. I mean, who likes SARS? The world would be a better place without SARS, right? Yes. Especially when you submit that tax return or you receive your payslip every month and say, what is this? What is this big expense on my payslip? Yeah. Nobody likes that. Would love it if that's not there. But these people were crooks. They, they, they were crooks. And uh, particularly for the Jews, these were people that turned their backs on their Jewish heritage to work for their enemies. I mean, if, it's one thing to say that the religious leaders despise them. What about God? Surely God must despise these kind of people? But Jesus shocks everybody with his parable. He starts with, in verse 11, with the Pharisee. It's initially very positive. Both these men went up to the temple and they went to pray. Although some, although some commentators would say 
it is an indictment on prayer to call what the Pharisee does prayer. He did not go up to the temple to pray. He went up to the temple to boast. There's a big difference. They're both there in the temple, but they're there for very different reasons, we can put it that way. Very, very different reasons. The one is self-sufficient. The other one is desperately needy. The one came for a pat on the back. The other one came for beating on his chest. Jesus says that this Pharisee stood and he prayed. Interesting, did you note? With himself. What on earth does that mean? Literally, he prayed to himself. He prayed to himself. It definitely does not mean that this Pharisee was out there to pray by himself. He wasn't there to go into some kind of secret corner into the temple bow on his knees and whisper softly so that nobody could hear him. That's not what Pharisees did. In fact, the temple was an even more public place than the street corners that Jesus refers to uh, earlier in the Gospels. When he says, don't be like the scribes and the Pharisees who love to stand on the street corners and after long prayers articulate very profound phrases so that they would be seen and applauded by men. I tell you, surely they have had their reward on earth. Don't be like them. That's what the Pharisees did. They didn't go to pray in secret. So this doesn't mean he went there just to pray by himself. No, what does this mean? He went to pray to himself. In other words, he's not praying to whom? Where prayer should be uttered. Where prayer should be aimed. This, dear friends, is a kind of prayer that doesn't reach the poor ear of God. In fact, it's a kind of prayer that hurts the ears of God. And he sticks his fingers in his ears and he goes, la, la, la. He doesn't want to hear it. He wants nothing of it. This prayer doesn't reach any higher. very clear because the prayer is not to God's glory but to his own glory. Have you noticed? In this entire prayer the Pharisee doesn't have one single request. That's a sign of a self-sufficient person. He's really saying, God what more can I need from you than what I already have attained for myself? That's what he's saying. It drips with arrogance in the face of a living God. Say, so wait a minute. Shouldn't we give him some credit? Look at how he starts his prayer. God, I thank thee that I am so great and perfect and wonderful. Have you noticed, by the way? It's what we call religious jargon. We use those phrases as well. To God be the glory. Right? I'm not saying everybody who uses that phrase in every circumstance is a hypocrite. 
but it's so easy to call these phrases over our lives and over our situations. And then what follows immediately after that is all about our glory. You see, his, that what follows in his prayer reveals his hypocrisy. You see, hypocrisy pretends to put something on the forefront, but when you peel it down, right at the center you find something else. These words, God, I thank thee, were the peels. That's what everybody saw. That's what everybody heard. But God, Jesus, in his parable, he, he removes the peels and he says, let's look at the center of what this man is really about. Is it really about God? Is it really about his gratitude towards God? No. That's a cover-up. It's fake. It's a mask that he wears. And you know what the scary thing is? You know what the scary thing is about hypocrisy and self-righteousness? Is that you even fool yourself. To think that you are thankful to God for all of it. In the literal Greek, six times in these two verses, the personal pronoun I. I am not this. I haven't done this. I am this. I have done this. Praying to himself, not praying to God. Saying, I, you are so worthy. There are two problems with his prayer. Two problems. Notice. Number one. This is his evaluation or diagnosis of himself. This is not God's diagnosis and evaluation. You see, the Pharisees haven't been paying attention <laughs> to what Jesus has been, have been preaching all along. God is not interested in the external. He's not impressed by that. What matters for God is the, is the internal. Just go back again to chapter 16, verse 15. Look at what Jesus says here to them. Chapter 16, verse 15. These are the Pharisees again. He said to them, Ye, you are them. That justify yourselves where? Before men. You see, the one, the, the, the ability, not just the one, but one of the abilities that man does not have, that God has, is to see your heart. To see your heart. It's easy to fool men. I can do it Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. I can stand here behind this pulpit and fool all of you. You can't see my heart. You don't know what my week has been like. You don't know where my temptations lie. You don't know how I fell. You could be sitting there 
looking at Karabo's lecture, said, man, I don't think you are. But, and don't, if you are. Or maybe we should use Karabo himself. Looking at him Sunday after Sunday and saying, man, that guy is all together. Do you, Karabo? None of us do. Because it's easy to fool men. You justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. They haven't been paying attention. You see, for God, it's not merely the outward that counts. You know what counts for God? It's your motives. It's your desires. It's your feelings. And your emotions. It's your thoughts. You know what counts for God? Who you are when you are alone. And nobody's watching. Somebody once gave me a definition for integrity. Never forget it. Very helpful. This means nothing, by the way. Don't be fooled by it. Taking off my watch doesn't mean that I'm in a hurry. I was once given a definition by integrity or for integrity. Integrity means who you are when you are alone or doing the right thing when you are alone. And nobody's watching. Nobody to impress. Nobody's ever going to notice. Integrity says there in that moment. And that's the moment that mattered to God. Dare I ask you, how are you doing? On that front. During every moment of every day. What's in your heart? <laughs> I, I always, <coughs> well, I heard this from a preacher who pointed this out uh, a while ago. And how easy it is to fool others and to try and fool ourselves. That we are better than what we really are. We make statements such as, you know, let you Sunday morning. I woke up this morning and I didn't sleep well. And I'm kind of tired and I knew that there was some guest preacher there or whatever. And I really didn't feel like going to church. <laughs> but I wait. A plus for me, right? Well, we're so glad you are here. But don't use your unrighteousness to praise you for righteousness. The very fact that you did not feel like coming in the first place to worship the living God is already something that you need to drop your head down in shame. Notice this Pharisee. These are probably true. From an external perspective. Everything that he lists here. First he lists what he's not and what he does not do. And then he lists what he is and what he does do. He says, um, I am not an extortioner. I, I, I'm not a thief. I don't, I don't in an unjust way take from others uh, which do not belong to me. Um, I, I, I'm, 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 I'm clean on, on, on that front. I'm not... 
uh, an adulterer. I've been very faithful uh, on, on that front. My, my, my record is, is clean. I'm not like that guy. We all know. I mean, his sins are evident. He, he makes no secret of it. That's exactly what he is. I, I, I'm not like him. And you know, I fast twice a week. Tithe, all that I possess. Do you know that these are not even requirements that the Old Testament law itself sets? Nowhere. I mean, I appreciate it if you can come and show me. I don't know my Bible perfectly in and out. But if you can come and show me where in the Old Testament it says that you must pass twice every week. Where does God give that command? He doesn't. As far as my knowledge goes. He doesn't say that you should bring tithes in the Old Testament of everything. There were certain particular times and, 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 and portions for which the Jewish people were to bring tithes to the temple. So what this guy is really saying is, he's saying, God, have you noticed I go above and beyond what even you require? The audacity to say, God, my standard is higher than yours. You know, that's what self-righteousness does, people. It does not only elevate you above other people. Pretty soon you, be, you believe that you are elevated above God's own standard, above His laws. But they haven't been paying attention. Remember Jesus' Sermon on the Mount? What did He say to them? Very quickly, read that to you. Matthew chapter 5. He says to them, I mean, this is, this, is the, this is the core. This is the foundation of Jesus' teaching. This is where he exposes them all. And then he keeps on building on this, on this first, let's say, proper public sermon of his. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. If you follow along, what Jesus is saying here is he's saying... Really, in sarcasm, the, 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 the righteousness that the Pharisees and the scribes believe themselves to have. God requires more than that. If it doesn't exceed that, you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. Listen to verse 21. You have heard it said, that it was said by them of old, Thou shalt not kill, and whoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, Whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of his counsel. Jesus exposes what is underneath the surface. Who of us can claim that we've never been angry? In any situation, at anyone, all our lives. Who of us can claim that we've never looked at somebody who's not your spouse with love, or even the thought or a hint of it? Jesus is saying, sure, make a tick behind the box. You've never gone over to the action, but in your heart, you You see, Jesus' words matter when, or sorry, the prophet Jeremiah's word spoken for God matters when he said, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. 
I mean, if you ever heard the worst combination in the world, it's right there. Having a heart that is both deceitful and desperately wicked at the same time. What do you think your heart is deceitful about? The fact that it's desperately wicked. Jesus was very clear, and that's why he called them whitewashed tombs. Secondly, very briefly, the problem with his prayer was that he compared himself to other people and not to God. Do you notice where his standard was? The tax collector. <laughs> I thank you that I'm not like that guy, rather than saying, God, forgive me that I'm not like you. I thank you that I'm not like him. And therein lies, in my opinion, the great challenge of the church, even of our day, and the great challenge of preaching the gospel, and the great challenge of theology and understanding God and His message and the Bible. Because, in my opinion, I think too often we get this wrong. We get this wrong. We have the wrong standard. We have what, what, what could properly be called cheap law. Because ultimately, the law is a revelation of God. It's a revelation of His holiness and His perfection. And therefore, Paul could say in Romans chapter 7, the law is good. It's righteous and it's just. There's nothing wrong with the law, but there's everything wrong with you. The problem is, you can't make that standard. So what we typically do in self-righteousness is we say, can't we just lower the standard of the law slightly? That would make us deal with our guilt. That would make us feel much better. Let me tell you, God will not lower His standard for anybody. There's no such thing as cheap law. God's standard remains. And you are required to keep that standard with no flaws whatsoever. He will not lower it. Which essentially means you and I are in trouble. We're in trouble. But no, it's far safer to say, let's make the standard other people. The people driving out there, why are they not in church? Why are they not worshipping God? I am. Surely that gives me some credit, right? They're not your standard. God is your standard. And you know what God requires? 100% perfection, 100% of the time. Any takers? That's what He requires. You see, that's the only thing that will break down our self-righteousness. If we understand who the standard truly is. It's God. It's God. Now, let's move to the very quickly to the publican. Notice his actions. He stands afar off. He doesn't want to go too deep into the temple court. He understands that this is the dwelling place of God. This is the temple. And there dwells a holy God. Let me not go there with much confidence. This is where he resides. He's, he's, not, he's not worthy of being in the presence of a, of a holy God. He did not even want to lift up his eyes. I mean, the text didn't say that he was standing afar off, you would get the idea that he was actually lying down on his belly. Because he wasn't willing to lift up his eyes. 
And what does that indicate? We know this so well, you know. The more things change, the more they stay the same. It's all the same. What do you do when you're guilty? Ask my children. Boy, I'm really handling them this morning. Eh? What do you do when you are guilty? In fact, the so-called professionals will tell you that's one way of telling somebody's lying. They're guilty of something. They don't want to look you in the eye. But there's more to that in, in this context here because it's really uh, bringing oneself low and saying, I'm not, I'm not worthy. Not just I'm guilty, but I'm not worthy. That's what we do as well when we show respect, right? Some cultures do that. Say, no, you, you don't just come in and you look somebody in the eye like that. You, you come close. You, you, bow, you bow your head. Right? It's a sign of respect. It's a sign of humility to say, I'm not, I'm not worthy of being in your glorious presence. That's what's going on here. I shouldn't even be here. I have no right. And then what does he do? Look at his action. He beats himself. On the chest. Now he doesn't do that to attract attention like the Pharisees. Then lies a warning for us as well. That's where the motives matter. We could be so repentant and sorry for our sin and, and so emotional about it. We're in the presence of other people and we cry out to the Lord and, and so that everybody would hear us and see how, how serious we are about us. That's not what he's doing. He's not doing this to attract attention to himself. He's doing this because he's bemoaning his own situation. It's an Old Testament picture. It's like sackcloth and ashes. It's like pouring ash on your head and tearing your robes and saying, I'm undone. With that, he's, uh, I believe he's also pointing out that, 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 that I'm the problem. It, it, it's me. It's not my circumstances as we would like to tell. It's, it's not somebody else who's, who's been this way to me and so I, I really, he provoked me. That's not, the problem is not outside of you. The problem is inside of you. It's inside of you. Inside of us. He's beating his chest and saying, my heart is wicked. My innermost being, my bowels, ritually is rotten. No way to escape. I have nothing to put to you, God, to say, at least I did. Or at least I'm. Interesting. When he begins to speak, he says, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Again, I have to point out, literally, it's a definite article that is used here. He's not saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. He's saying, God be merciful to me, the sinner. Say, God, if, 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 if we were to put, to take the billions of people who ever lived on the face of this earth, and you would say there's only one sinner amongst them, that would be me. That would be me. That's why the Apostle Paul later proclaimed to say, I'm the chief of sinners. Not because he was a worst adulterer or idolater or thief or unjust person. 
in all these external actions and had no control over that. No, no. It was because Paul knew what mattered was inside of me. And I don't know what's going on inside of you, but I know what's going on inside of me. And it's not pretty. Everything in this publicans, this pescalator's posture and actions and attitudes and words says one thing. I am to be despised. Interesting. That's what the Pharisees, how they viewed them. They despised others. So what is this? What is this text? What is this text collector saying? He's not saying no, no, no. You're not being fair. Be kind. Be nice. No, he's actually saying what they say about me is true. I'm worthy of being despised. That's my rightful place. I should be there. They're despised, and not just despised by them, but despised by the living God because he considered his his heart, not just his external attitude. He compared himself to God and not to other people. See, this is the crushing reality that strips us of all self-righteousness. And when we do that, when we are confronted with who we truly are, when we listen to the preaching of the law and the preaching of Jesus and the preaching of the apostles, and it strips us of ourselves and any kind of merit that we might think we have, then we are left with only one hope. There's only one place to go. Somebody once said, friends, God's office is at the end of your rope. But if you're still climbing and you're still battling and you're still running on that treadmill or thinking that you're going to do something that makes God pay attention, you won't meet God there. You'll meet him when you're tired and exhausted and when you come to the end of your rope and you realize there's nothing in my hands I bring. Simply, to your cross, I cling. Naked, I come to you for dress, helpless. I look to you for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior. This tax collector knew that he was only had, had one hope. And he didn't have profound words to utter. He didn't have long sentences. It was simple. It was a simple request put to God. He's saying, God, be merciful. It's a very interesting word. It's used as well in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, when it says that Christ became our propitiation. You know that word? Yeah, you've read it. Propitiation. What does propitiation mean? Propitiation means the satisfying. The full satisfying of his furious wrath. Punishment. Judgment. It's then that atomic bomb, bomb of, the, of, of the judgment of God which should explode on each of us individually and never stop exploding. That explodes on Jesus Christ while He's hanging on the cross and He says, 
I have become your propitiation. I have paid your penalty. Walk out of the courtroom, my friend. The judge has acquitted you of all guilt. You are free to go. And not even Satan and his cohorts of demons can come and bring a charge against the elect of God. Because the judge has spoken. And he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us forever. So that whenever somebody comes and says, Yeah, but you know, this guy still, Jesus gets up. And he says, Done and dusted. I want to say to you this morning, that if you are sitting here, and you've come to church, and you, you know inside of you, you know we come in here, and we are friendly, and that's all good, we are God's people and we enjoy being together. But inside of you, something feels awkward because you kind of feel like a misfit. Because do I really belong amongst God's people? Do I deserve to be here? If you are exhausted by trying to keep up that front and saying, well, yeah, I am like you, and I do get it right most of the time. And there is great progress. If you're exhausted by keeping that front, and you realize inside, actually, you are not the same. If that's you, I would say you're in a good place. If it's not you, I would say, the holiness of God like Isaiah did and fall flat on your face and say woe is me for I am undone for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among people of unclean lips I'm not worthy to be in your presence but the encouragement is the encouragement is that when you reach the depths of your sinfulness and your lostness and there's nowhere else to go no other means of escape. In that depth, the depth of mercy will reach you. Charles Wesley wrote a hymn. Not a very familiar or common hymn, as we said. It's entitled Depth of Mercy. Maybe you've heard it. These are the words. Depths of mercy can they be Mercy still reserved for me. Can my God his wrath forbear? Me the chief of sinners spare. I have long withstood his grace. Long provoked him to his face. Would not hearken to his cause. Grieved him by a thousand falls. I my master have denied. I afresh have crucified. Often provoked his hallowed name. Put him to an open shame. But there for me the Savior stands. Shows his wounds and spreads his hands. God is love, I know, I feel. Jesus weeps and loves me. Stop. Father, we thank you for such grace. We don't want to speak many words. 
You have spoken and we remain silent. Work this powerful message of the gospel in us.